What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Is it recording now? It is recording. Well, uh, I would have to say this is wonderful being here in Boston. Mm -hmm. In early January 2000, Gene Malov gathered with his family and friends for brunch at a fancy restaurant in Boston. Malov was wearing a dark suit and a striped tie, his bushy beard now long enough to hang down over his starched white collar. Sitting next to Dr. Malov was his wife, Joanne. She was a petite woman with a fluffy dark bob and wore a black sparkly turtleneck. They were there to celebrate Joanne's 54th birthday and their son, Ethan, had brought their camcorder. And I myself, being 53, is in the process of rapid decay, but I am transferring all my knowledge to my son, Ethan, and my daughter, Kim. Are there any other questions that you need to ask What um, ramifications does turning 54 have on, on the uh, expansion of the universe? Well, it shows that the cosmic time is being incrementally added to, that it's gone forward. Malov hammed it up for the camera, cracking geeky dad jokes about the space-time continuum. Even though we do not know or understand or have any idea of what the hell time is, Stephen Hawking notwithstanding. While her husband kidded around, Joanne did too. She was giggling and reached over behind his head, pretending to pull out a strand of his hair straight up like that goofy kid alfalfa from The Little Rascals. <laughs> we are nonetheless expanding, or we think we're expanding. You know, my waist is expanding. On the outside, he kind of seemed serious, maybe even hard to approach. But really, deep down, he was kind of, kind of zany. Dr. Maloff's sense of humor is one of those things his daughter Kim remembers most about him. She treasures the home videos that caught these special moments with her mom and dad on tape. But these happy videos belie the hard times to come. My mom really wanted stability. She wanted him to have a nine to five, like a full-time, well-paying job. Certainly he was capable of that. Joanne was a talented pianist. Like Malov, she was impressively educated having received multiple master's degrees in music education, music therapy, and special education. She taught music in public and private schools and gave piano lessons to students with special needs. But surviving on her salary alone would prove to be a struggle after Malov left his job at MIT. Malov's increasingly obsessive quest for cold fusion put a strain on his family. He promised they'd all be fine once the cold fusion breakthrough inevitably happened. But they were starting to wonder when and if that would ever occur. 
it created some tension between my parents. I don't know that I thought he was going too far. I kind of sympathized with my mom and I understood. Yeah, I was kind of like, yeah, why can't dad just go to work and then maybe do this other stuff on the side? But he really couldn't. He just really wanted to be 100%. He was like all in. So it was hard for him. By 2000, some of Malov's friends and colleagues were beginning to worry about how far he was willing to go and even who he may have been associating with. As far as Joanne knew, her husband didn't have any real enemies in the science community, but she would later write that in May 2004, I do remember feeling anxious about Eugene. It's nothing I can put my finger on or explain. I just felt uneasy about his well-being. It got to a point where we were riding in the car and I asked Eugene where he wanted to be buried. He thought that was unusual to ask, but I told him how I was feeling. Three days later, Malov was found on his driveway, dead. From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, I'm David Kushner, and this is Crime Waves, Cold Truth. This is episode five, Vindication. In spring 2001, Dr. Eugene Malov sat at his desk and began writing an editorial for the next issue of his magazine. The title read, A Bombshell in Science. We present what I believe to be one of the most important technical papers ever to grace this magazine. Dr. Malov was still fixated on a secretive device that had been invented by two researchers in Canada, Paolo and Alexandra Correa. If credible, Malov determined, this device would represent a radical step forward in how electromagnetics could be used to produce free energy. Malov dedicated several pages of infinite energy to the Correa's paper, and he wrote an enthusiastic letter of support to potential investors for their work. I must say that of all the laboratories I've visited in my entire life in science and engineering, yours has been by far the most impressive and worthy of significant funding. But Malov's alliance with the Correa's was not sitting well with everyone. And I, I thought it was a waste of time. Jed Rothwell, who'd started Infinite Energy with Malov, was just one of many Korea critics. I thought they were, their claims were ridiculous and unproven and the experiments were garbage. And I was always willing to say that about anybody. Jed had a brief, albeit unpleasant history with the inventors. Years earlier, he'd had a heated argument with Paolo Korea at a free energy conference that Malov had organized. After Jed insisted that important scientific discoveries don't belong to the inventors, but to humanity, Correa dismissed his view as what he called absolutely anti-libertarian delirium. Jed took to the free energy forums online and began picking apart the Correa's work for all to see. I critique them probably in a fairly technical way because that's what I do. I try not to make it too personal, you know, because that's how programmers are. 
But it did get personal because Dr. Maloff defended the Koreas. He thought they had a valid claim. And I looked at their experiments and said, this is, this is crazy. There's no way that could be a valid claim. It's possible that they had something, but they didn't measure it the right way. They didn't go about doing experiments that would prove it. From the beginning of their friendship, Jed had accepted that Malov was more open-minded than him, but he also worried that Malov was way too trusting. He knew I thought that. I told him any number of times. But, uh, you know, it's, there's never any harm in being wrong in science. Ne never any harm in, in trusting too much, going too far. But I, I was probably disappointed in him that he would believe such a thing. While it wasn't the first time they'd argued, it was probably the most public. Jed and Dr. Malov began bickering about the Koreas online. In one post, Jed called them liars who faked the results and morally depraved monsters who withhold important technology. When Malov read this, he hit right back in his reply. You need to admit that you don't have enough scientific expertise to evaluate their work. Jed fired back, saying that anyone who took a high school physics class could evaluate their work. If the Koreas think that society doesn't deserve their technology based on the terms that society dictates, well then, they're allowed to have that view. It's their own property, after all. Jed vehemently disagreed. No, this is morally abhorrent. It is like withholding food when you have a huge surplus and thousands of people are starving. Their right to survive far outweighs the Korea's intellectual property rights. The situation would be a moral outrage if the Korea's claims were true, but I do not think they are. So it is only a farce. Paulo Korea did not take kindly to Jed's criticism. They got very upset with me and they accused me of all kinds of things and they accused me of working on the part of the establishment to suppress the technology and all this sort of thing. Correa wrote an unhinged 54,000-word blog post eviscerating Rothwell. The feverish rant included makeshift clip art mocking Jed, including the image of a nude figure standing on the moon bent over with his head up his own ass. They're, they're wacky, they're strange people. Oh, very, uh, very obnoxious people. Ugh. What they said about me was obnoxious. <laughs> Just you know, claiming that I was an agent of the government or some stupid thing like that. They, they kept putting email messages out, villainizing me, which doesn't hurt my feelings because I'm a very hard boiled person, but it sure is obnoxious. And, and also, you know, if you have a scientific claim, you can easily persuade me or anybody if you just do the right experiments. That's all I ever demanded of them or anybody. Dr. Malov signed a non-disclosure agreement with Koreas, promising to never reveal the inventions they showed him in their lab. But even with the shroud of secrecy, Malov began spending more and more time working on their behalf, traveling the country to find deep-pocketed investors for the Koreas and writing letters asking the general public to fund their technology. The Correa's work was more important than anything, it seemed, even his relationship with the longtime friend. I thought they were bad for him, bad for the reputation of Cold Fusion. We had some fallings out. We, we, we certainly didn't agree his whole life. He was very aggressive, pugilistic, I guess you would say. He was the kind of person who would argue with someone. 
when it would be best to jump in your car and flee. Jed continued to write for the magazine, but began to distance himself from Dr. Malov until eventually they barely spoke at all. There were others who left the magazine because of Malov's support for the Koreas too, but it wasn't just his peers who were getting frustrated around this time. In 2002, Dr. Malov received a letter from his top donor. After four years of support, the donor was pulling his funding from Infinite Energy entirely. Investors had hoped to see a payoff by now, and they were losing patience because despite encouraging test results, there had not been any significant or commercially viable breakthroughs in cold fusion yet. Though Malov tried to keep up their hopes, the results just weren't coming quickly enough. I remember him feeling frustrated. You know, he was always writing to congressmen, senators and things like the White House, the president, you know, who, who will listen, who will give him time to speak and talk about it. Who's gonna be open-minded, willing to put money into this kind of research? With no other support, Malov would have to shutter his lab and lay off employees. Dr. Malov was 55 years old. It had been 11 years since he gambled his career on leaving his prestigious position at MIT for the fringe science of cold fusion. He'd risked his professional reputation and his family's stability on the belief that this unproven innovation could solve humanity's most pressing problem, climate change, and our reliance on fossil fuels. And that gamble, it now seemed, had failed. To his son, Ethan, the dad who was constantly racing around his lab, reading every science journal, and working tirelessly on Infinite Energy magazine, now seemed checked out. One day, Ethan even asked him, you're still going to do the magazine, right? His dad looked at him and said, well, of course, but... I need a backup plan. The man who had once dreamed of reaching the stars was now doing something way more down to earth, getting a real estate license. He started renting out the white two-story house in Norwich, Connecticut, where he'd grown up. His childhood home, he, you know, he never, he could never sell it. He, he just never wanted to get rid of it because it was so nostalgic for him. It was his, his home where he grew up and he didn't want anyone else to have it or for it to be, you know, leveled and a gas station put on it or something like that. So he's just really sentimental and nostalgic about things. Malov was spending more and more time driving back and forth from New Hampshire to Connecticut, managing the properties his parents had given him. And being a landlord was shaping up to be a ton of work. You know, there were some people living at that particular property that, you know, Gene didn't think were the greatest tenants. It was a struggle. Christy Frazier was still working for Infinite Energy, and as promised, Dr. Malov didn't give up on the magazine. He had an amazing ability, I will say this, to juggle things in a way that I've seen very few people capable of doing. It really was remarkable to me that he was able to 
focus on so many things at once. But as months wore on, the challenges Dr. Mallow faced became more and more personal. I think it was March of 2003, his dad died, and he was an only child and very close with his parents. And he realized at that time that his mother's memory was also going. And so he decided that he needed to move his mother up to New Hampshire. She lives in Connecticut. With his mother in need of somewhere to live and his magazine skeleton crew in need of a place to work, Maloff had an idea. He decided to look for a space that his mom could have her private living space in and we could have an office either within the same building or next door to it or something. As fate would have it, Malov would meet someone with a solution just a few days later. In talking to the guy, the guy told him, oh, I have this historic house and it happens to be like a mile and a half from Jean's house. And um, it just so happened that there was an apartment next door attached to this historic building. So he rented the space next door for his mother and rented the space for our office. It did what he was trying to accomplish. It got him next door to his mother. But he had to somehow hustle new money if he was going to keep the magazine afloat. Maloff did get a break when a new benefactor stepped up with about 100 grand a year. Maloff hoped he could reopen the lab, maintain his warehouse space, but this was barely enough to keep it all going. In late 2003, he posted an open letter on Infinite Energy's website asking for financial support. If by chance you're one of those who believe that all is well in the house of science and that official science can be counted on to behave itself and always seeks the truth, even in matters of central overarching importance to the well-being of humankind, you are sorely mistaken. And I could prove that to you with compendious documentation. But as a first step, you should reflect on the broader history of science, which is so fraught with revolutionary leaps and paradigm shifts. I think he could always find a sort of a positive cloud to stand under, you know? Well, okay, all these bad things happen, but here we've got this really great one positive thing over here. And, you know, sometimes he may have been the only person who thought that thing was a positive thing, but it gave him hope and it enabled him to keep working in a field that was very hard to work in, frankly. Nothing was going right, and things seemed to have cooled in the world of cold fusion, too. It had been almost 15 years since the Pons and Fleischmann debacle. And in all that time, Maloff had been leading the crusade to keep cold fusion alive, but ended up sweeping out rental units instead. By late 2003, several researchers were certain they had evidence that they'd actually achieved cold fusion. But after so many years of defeat, there was no reason for hope. The Department of Energy held the ultimate purse strings for cold fusion research. And without their support, there was little that anyone could really do. But then in early 2004, Malov, a guy who'd been trafficking in news for decades, got the most surprising news of all. After years of dismissing cold fusion, the Department of Energy had agreed to formally review the recent innovations in cold fusion research, 
This was huge news. It was so big that Maloff got a call from a reporter at the New York Times who wanted his expert opinion on the story. Malov was quoted in the article saying, I'm absolutely delighted that the Department of Energy is finally going to do the right thing. I'm certain there can be no other conclusion than a major new window has opened on physics. Dr. Malov called it one of his greatest pleasures, and that pleasure came with a special surprise. It was such an honor to express my opinion in the newspaper of record. And there was an unexpected but very welcome development after the New York Times article. Someone with an oil investment firm contacted us and gave an immediate and sizable financial contribution. He included a note saying, didn't know cold fusion was still around. Sorry for not being a donor sooner. You can count on my support monthly. Now, if that doesn't indicate a great turnaround, then <laughs> I don't know what does. Suddenly, Malov's phone was ringing again. Reporters were calling for his thoughts. Prospective investors were reaching out. Popular Mechanics, one of the most established mainstream science magazines, even sent a reporter all the way out to New Hampshire just to meet with Malov in person and tour his operations. With the government review on the horizon, this renewed public interest in cold fusion and the newfound funding for Dr. Malov's operations, life and work felt more promising than ever. So Malov sat down at his computer and wrote one of the most enthusiastic editorial columns of his career. He was cautiously ecstatic. He titled it Vindication with a question mark and an exclamation point. News of the U.S. Department of Energy's recent commitment to review the past 15 years of evidence has hit like a bombshell. It is a truly astonishing reversal. While he saw this reversal as a monumental sign of progress for the cause of cold fusion, Dr. Malov refused to forget the hard lessons of the last 15 years. But let's not get too carried away so that we ignore the implicit dangers of this review. We are not yet home free at last because there can be no doubt that just as in 1989, the pathological skeptics will be out in force with sharpened knives and all manner of dirty tricks to derail this review. And in Malov's mind, even if the Department of Energy found compelling evidence, and if the pathological skeptics didn't find a way to ruin his momentary triumph, there were still conspiracies to expose. How will the pathological skeptics attempt to rewrite the history of the past 15 years to suit their maligned purposes? In other words, would the title of this editorial prove to be accurate? Would there actually be vindication for cold fusion and for him? Maloff seemed hopeful as he reached the end of his last paragraph. The coming months will be very interesting times, that's for sure. Let's hope for some satisfying answers to these many questions. For now, let's just relax and try to think pleasant thoughts about the coming new energy age. It may be a bit closer than we had thought a few months ago. It's 1986, Newark and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job, a fresh start with a secure future as a cop. But Mike has no idea he's about to join what he calls the biggest gang in America. 
I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue, Behind the Badge, a story about what happens when you have to pick a side. Follow Black and Blue, Behind the Badge, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want to hear something spooky? Some monster was standing there. It reminded me of Bigfoot. In walks a tall, gray alien. One of the teenage boys started to exhibit signs of textbook demonic possession. I'm Derek Hayes, host of Monsters Among Us podcast. This pure all-white entity staring straight at me. Where there should have been eye sockets, there weren't. Monsters Among Us is an anthology of real paranormal stories told by real witnesses. I never really believed in this Loch Ness Monster nonsense, but something very snake-like lifted its head out of the water. A giant black triangle. It was so big that it blotted out the stars. And I saw what looked like a huge monster. I could see the outline of hair. New episodes of Monsters Among Us drop every Thursday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Somehow I had lost eight whole hours. Dr. Malov was still reeling from the Department of Energy announcement when in late February 2004, he received more good news. His first grandchild had just been born. Malov got in his car and drove to the shop where he picked up a New York Times. He couldn't wait to take it to Seattle where his daughter lived. So his grandson Matthew would be able to look back and see what was happening in the world on his birthday. He had all these things he was so excited about amid all this crazy stuff he was dealing with, you know. All the good news from the last few months didn't erase the tedium of his landlord duties. He kept having to make this two and a half hour trek from New Hampshire to Connecticut to deal with ongoing landlord issues. But that wasn't all. His tenants were creating major headaches. One day in May 2004, Malov got a call from an acquaintance in Connecticut. Somebody went to the property and told him, look, it's in bad shape. You know, not just that the lawn needs to be mowed because the grass was very long, but you know, there's, there's junk in the driveway, there's junk on the lawn, like it was a disaster. This wasn't exactly new either. He described to me what state he had seen it in when he, when he visited. So he told me that he was gonna go on Friday the 14th to Norwich to clean the property up. And I just said, um, do you want me to go with you? The task seemed daunting, but Christy knew Malov and she knew how he could be in situations like this. He often wanted to do things on his own. Given how much of a slog the five hour round trip and cleanup process would be, Christy knew he could use a hand, but... He said, oh, no, no, I would never put that on you. And I'm like, well, it'll get me out of the office. Ha ha, you know. Dr. Malov insisted that he go alone. The day before the trip, Christy wasn't at the office, so she didn't see Dr. Malov. And so when I came into work on Friday, the 14th of May of 2004, um, there was a note on my desk, which um, I didn't often get special little notes from Gene, you know. He told me, I FedEx the package to this person, and if they call, make sure they call me. And you know, he, he had all these little notes about things he had done and what I might expect as a result of those things. And then at the end, he said, I hope you have a great day. I'll see you on Monday, you know, with like a bunch of exclamation points. Christy worked all day and went home to her apartment to rest up for the weekend 
that she'd planned to spend with her dad. But at 6 a.m. on Saturday morning, a phone call woke her up. It was pretty early. And so, you know, I kind of was in sort of a sleep stupor. And as soon as I answered and he, and he told me who it was, I obviously knew something bad had happened. Dr. Maloff's son, Ethan, was on the other end. And he sounded terribly shaken. He, he told me that Jean had been killed. I had an immediate sort of guttural reaction, you know, the, you know, your stomach gets upset. And um, so it was, you know, I've experienced a lot of traumatic things and bad news in my lifetime, but that, you know, has to be the, the most traumatic thing. The initial news was devastating enough, but what she later learned felt even more horrific. He had lain there in the driveway alive for a long time and they came back and killed him. I didn't know that for a while. And so the moment I found out about the brutality of, of the death in particular, I just felt like, I felt like it was very personal. I have never cried so hard and for so long. He had said Malov was one of many scientists that were killed because of their knowledge of alternative energy sources. I shouldn't say anymore, really. They asked for very strange things. I was a little disturbed, honestly. That's coming up on Crime Waves, Cold Truth. From Cute Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, This is episode five of eight of Crime Waves, Cold Truth. Cold Truth is hosted by me, David Kushner, and based on my article, The Coldest Case. The events in this series are true and actually happened, but some reenactment details are dramatized. Actor Jason Kravitz is the voice of Dr. Malov, and the dialogue is drawn from Malov's extensive writings and speeches. Heather Schrering is the voice of Joanne Malov in this episode. The series is written, reported, and produced by me, David Kushner, Heather Schrering, and Sean Cannon for No Smiling, and Graylin Brashear. Original music and sound design by John Eckhaus. Fact-checking by Rebecca Nelson. Additional writing by Rolf Potts. Managing producer is Daniel Rafe. Marketing lead is Ellie Kotopish. Executive produced by Stephen Canner, Jamie Schutz, and me, David Kushner, for Faceplant. And Rob Herding and David Henning for Q-Code. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends about us. The next episode will be out in a week. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow Crime Wave's Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? 
Well, we dove deep into the Empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.